0: This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! For over half a century now, Carol Sokolov has not only identified in advance the most significant trends and innovations driving the markets and the economy, he's also pinpointed the most attractive investment opportunities afforded by them. As a result, his firm, 13D Research, has become one of the most respected and influential services among institutional investors around the world. In this conversation, Kirill discusses how he developed and honed his investment approach over the course of his extensive and illustrious career, and how he's using it today to isolate the most valuable macro signals in the markets. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kirill Sokolov. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500?
1: Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Mm-hmm.
0: Kirill Sokoloff, welcome to the show. Really glad to be here, Jesse. Well, you've been generous enough to invite me into your home office here. It's gorgeous. I have to apologize to the audience if I, if I drift off and I'm, I'm mesmerized by the, uh, the view. It's pretty stunning. Uh, so i, I got to ask you first off, we're sitting here in gorgeous Sun Valley, Idaho. Um, what I consider one of the most idyllic settings in the world. How long have you been coming here, and what was it that made you decide to make a home here?
1: Well, those of us who lived in New York in the 1980s all wanted to move out west, and I was the only one who actually made it. And I visited a lot of the the great spots, Santa Fe, Jackson, Telluride. Uh, I actually had a home in Alta for a while, and I came to Sun Valley, and I think it was in 1988. And it was love at first sight. And four miles north of my house is a park the size of the state of Connecticut. And there are, I would guess, fifteen hikes that you can do four to four thousand to five thousand vertical feet ascents. So people come here to ski and then they find out how great it is in the (laughs) summer and they like it more in the summer so it's been a wonderful place place to live wonderful people here
0: i mean it is so the late 80s is that is that kind of how long so yeah i mean you've been doing the the remote work thing A lot longer than most people have been doing. Probably longer than almost anybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got to ask you, you know, in terms of your uh, research and um, the reports that you put out, there was one in particular, uh, and you you feature a lot of quotes in the opening of these things, and, and they're just terrific uh, way to kind of open the, the reports. But one in particular stuck with me, a, a quote from Gertrude Stein. Um, quote, everybody gets so much information all day long that they lose their common sense. <laughs> 13D seems to make a living of taking information and applying common sense to it. How do you go about separating signal from all the noise that's out there today?
1: Well, it's a really good question, and it's never been more important than now. And... You know, if I have a skill and a forte, I think it's that precise thing. It's to figure out what's important. <clears throat> and I'm always trying to focus. What's most important? What's What's the thing that I really need to be thinking about? And not distracted with all the noise. And I'll give you an example of a real aha moment for me. So it was 1988, and I read a, a paragraph. I think it was the Wall Street Journal. And essentially it said, that it took 70 years to put a landline system into the U.K., 50 years into the U.S., 30 years into Japan, 20 years into South Korea, but you could put a mobile phone system in in a year and a half. And the whole world, I said, oh, boy, this is it. The whole world is going to change. And so we started buying uh, international telcos, and that took me to Hong Kong because I bought Hong Kong Tel. And I was present when China opened up in 1992, and of course, I understood how big the internet was going to be. And then I got involved in disruption, e-commerce. So that one little piece of of information was just priceless. And another example, uh, I remember back in 1977, I think it was. I read an article by Jack Kemp, congressman from Buffalo. And it was entitled something like Cutting Tax Rates to Get America Going Again. Not tax says, but tax rates. It's hard to believe now, but in those days, high taxes was considered. This was good. This was the way the world was. So this was a totally new way of thinking. And I knew intuitively, this is right. He's going to win. This is is magnificent. And I called him up and said, I'd like to come down and see you. I want to write a book about what you're doing which he agreed to. And, and that gave me the window onto the whole world of supply-side economics, free market capitalism, which essentially is what the last 40 years have been about. So is it is a little something that you'll see. Another example would be 2002. I noticed that there were 500-year floods in Eastern Europe. So I'm looking for the outlier event as well. 500-year flood, not 50 years. Not 100 years, 500 years. Woo, this is big. It means insurance companies aren't reserved adequately. And I have one of my precepts is a contagion will continue until proven otherwise. But you need to have the second confirmation.
0: Okay.
1: So the second confirmation of an outlying event was the hottest weather in France's history in 2003. And, of course, we had a huge number of things. It was Katrina. Everybody's forgotten about how many there were. So that was the beginning of our focus on climate change. We didn't want to get into the battle of, of climate change. So we just focused on extreme weather events. So these little things, you just pick them out, and all of a sudden the whole world opens up for you. And it's, I, don't, I guess it's an art. To me, its, it's it seems very easy they're things that other people do that seem very easy to, right. to them are very hard for me yeah. but this is a forte i have
0: well and, and then so i guess my follow up question would be is you know for every one of those discoveries that you make how much reading do you do that doesn't necessarily result in any type of aha moment
1: well i think uh, i'm doing less reading now than i used to do and i think the the big the big uh, next thing it's never going to be hidden from you if you're perceptive right so you I'd rather keep my mind clear I'd rather focus more on meditation you know walk in the forest go for a hike uh, just just be thinking clearly because it's going to, it's going to, to come to me now you have a certain amount of intuition here um, and then there's a certain amount of connecting the dots. And connecting the dots is, is really, really fun. I really enjoy that. And for some reason people struggle with it. And we have AI and, and big data to do the work for us, but they aren't doing precisely what I do yet. Uh, so I'm reading less to clutter my mind less
0: yeah.
1: and focus on a few a few big big themes. So you cut it? You you know, uh, actively cutting
0: out the noise so that you can focus on signal a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I I would say I used to read maybe six, seven hours a day. I would say it's five, Mm -hmm. five now,
0: which is still a (laughs) lot more than most people do. Still a lot. Yeah. Um, So you know this. And another thing I notice in reading your reports is just a deep respect for history. Um, there's just so much knowledge and wisdom in experience and in history. You have such a breadth uh, of experience in your own work. You know, that was one of the reasons why I just feel so grateful to come and be able to talk with you like this. But I guess for aspiring investors, um, would you recommend uh, the study of history above other subjects
1: and things? Well, I think history is uh, essential to understand the world. And when I first came to New York after getting out of college, I ran into a history professor, and I said, all you guys do is to teach events and death of kings and wars and so on. Did anybody write about the lessons of history? And he says, as a matter of fact, somebody did. It was Will Durant, and it was called the lessons of history. So the next day I went to Scribner's on Fifth Avenue, I bought the book, 100 pages. I read it before I left the store. I was just engrossed. And he he wrote it, he and it later, his wife, wrote it after 40 years of writing the story of civilization. And you can see some volumes up there. It's about (coughs) 11,000 pages, I think. And I read 20 pages a night, so I read the whole thing once. And then I read the whole thing again. And that was my education. And what you see is, there's nothing new under the sun. Yes, there is AI, but technology has been, you know, it's been in existence, you know. I mean, how, how are the, the, the pyramids made? Uh, it, give me a lever and I can move the world, Alchimides. So uh, there's nothing new and there are cycles that repeat. And one of the biggest and most definite cycle is the cycle of wealth creation and wealth distribution. And I was present at the cycle of of wealth creation. I knew it was coming. Uh, I could feel it in my bones that grassroots capitalism was ready to be revived in the U.S. And after 40 years, I knew that the cycle of wealth distribution was coming as well. It's just, it's a cycle. It's not, you know, good or bad. You're not for or against. You just go with the cycle. So it's essential. And then you need to understand countries. If you're going to invest, in a country outside of the United States, and even if you can, even in the United States, you must know its history, its culture, uh, its the traumas. How can you understand Russia if you don't understand that 50 million Russians, mostly civilians, died in World War II? How can you understand? Uh, China. If you don't understand the pain of the foreign occupation of the 19th century and the the invasion by the Japanese, these are just essential things that you must know. And Americans, for whatever reason, have a U.S.-centric view, and I think that that hurts them. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, you know. In addition to you know, I got to ask you just about. one of the other things i notice in in your reports is that uh you seem to have uh, a curiosity for um you know not just sharing putting your views out there in the world but seeing the feedback and getting feedback from you know from clients readers other people you respect uh, in the industry i recently sat down with julian brigden and did an interview and, and he discussed the tremendous value he gets from sharing a lot of his research with some of his major institutional clients who take that and put their own spin on it, their own perspective on it, and share it back with him, and that it kind of creates a, a virtuous cycle of, of uh, you know, evolution, evolutionary, you know, ideology. Um, that seems to you seem to do the same thing, you know, featuring interviews that you conduct with many of your own clients or contacts. How does this influence your your thinking or your analytical process?
1: Well, we have a, a brain trust, a thirteen D brain trust. And I bounce ideas off them all the time. They send me stuff. And I remember Charles Darwin, who did his great research on the origin of species and the stand of man, uh, he kept going over and over and over again and looking for flaws. And there's a great quote that he had that if he found somebody who had said something that contradicted something that he believed, he would... Take it out and study it and listen to it. So you have to be open-minded in this in this world. You have to be open that you're wrong, that you're seeing things incorrectly, and there's always somebody out there who can tell you that you're making a big <laughs> mistake. And hopefully that you find them before you do. Well, that's something that you know. I
0: think Ray Dalio has been a lot more public, you know, lately about kind of preaching this open-mindedness and and, and courting, you know. Uh, uh, views that are kind of antithetical to your own. Um, it seems like you know that is one of the common traits of great investors is is not just finding you know more information, you know, practicing confirmation bias, looking for reasons why they're right, but you know almost in a paranoid way, looking for reasons and way ways you might be wrong. Um, and, and so that's really kind of the the impetus for for you to reach out to these these other great minds in your network.
1: Well, it's also, someone can come and give you a beautifully constructed, tremendously articulate argument, but it can be wrong. Right. <laughs> and then somebody else who really isn't articulate, who's stumbling for the words and the right way of saying it, sees it all. So you have to just be, be open. And it's, it's the biases that, that kill you. Right. And we all have biases and... I have my own biases. You try to recognize your biases. I mean, for example, with my study of history, after 40 years of disinflation, I have a bias towards looking for the inflationary event. Mm-hmm. Or after 40 years of wealth creation, I have a bias towards we're now, you know, 40 years, the extremes of wealth uh, disparity, it's time for uh, level playing field, so I have that bias. I think it's a strength, but you could also say that it's a bias. But I do, I do have some biases from my historical work.
0: Well, and also in terms of understanding market history, uh, in addition to identifying, you know, a lot of these major trends. I mean, virtually all of the major trends over the last half century. You seem to possess the ability to not only identify them, but also identify the most effective way to play them from an investment standpoint. Uh, is there an overarching framework, um, you know, behind that, or is it just simply come down to understanding market history, and that kind of helps you develop an investment thesis related to these themes?
1: Well, it, it's a good question. I I think you're being too kind in a way. I've identified the, the major. Uh, events, but I wouldn't say that I've executed them as well as I could have. And I think what you need is a partner, uh, you know, somebody who's thinking big picture and big moves, and somebody who's there in the weeds who's doing the execution. Mm-hmm. So, a- as a case in point, uh, we became tremendously interested in disruption <clears throat> in 1995. We called it creative destruction. And I told one of my colleagues, said, so this is what I want you to do for the next 30 years. And that's exactly what he did. <laughs> and that's all he does. And I don't think there's a single disruption or innovation that that we missed. We got every single one. Yeah, But that doesn't mean that I am personally invested. In right, that. right. And if we were sitting here in 1995 and I told you about what I'd seen in, in emerging countries with mobile and we're saying, look, they're going to be they're going to be three, 3 billion smartphones in 10 years, 15 years. And we were going to figure out, well, what would we invest in? Well, we want to invest in the manufacture of, of smartphones, we want to invest in cell towers, and we want to invest in e-commerce. And I had an apartment uh, in New York in 1996, and there was a Borders uh, bookstore down below, <clears throat> And I read that Amazon was going to get into the, the internet-selling book business. So I, I had to be in the first 100 customers. And it saved me the time of going down the elevator, finding the book, standing in line. And I was always going to be a line, and catchier. It was just, you know, choo-choo-choo. And it was all the time. So I, I just said, wow, this is incredible. But I never bought Amazon stock. Right. right. I mean, that's just so stupid, Right. And when, this, when it was six in the early 2000s, it was just just a giveaway. And uh, there's another example of one of my colleagues. Uh, father-in-law was really a, a tech genius. And in 1988, two years after Microsoft went public, he came into our office and said, here's, here's the monopoly that Microsoft has. Mm-hmm. You only need to make one investment in technology. That's Microsoft. We was totally persuasive. We were persuaded, but I didn't buy the stock. <laughs> right. And the reason is that I tend to be overly focused. And it, it's a strength and it's a weakness. It's a strength in the fact that I want to know as much as anybody else if I'm making an investment. Right. And if I'm in an area where I don't know much and I know I'm going to be scrambling to catch up, I tend not to do it. So, um, I mean, what I did in the nineteen eighties was to buy thirty-year treasuries on margin. You could you could borrow um, uh, up to ninety-five percent, and short rates were above long rates at the time. But that didn't last for long. You knew, yeah. you knew, you you just knew that rates were going to collapse. So you, you got the capital gains, but then you got the positive cost to carry. Yeah. So that's what I did in the eighties. I didn't own any stocks. Yeah. And you can say, well, that was really great. Or you could say, "Mm, why didn't you have some stocks? Well, I got to ask you, how did you know that rates were going to
0: collapse? Because obviously the market, you know, was pricing in something different.
1: I don't think I've ever had more confidence. I was alone. Uh, Everybody was inflation forever. Uh, There had been in the late uh, 70s, you had to blow off in commodities uh, which is always a sign of the end of something—the unsustainable rate of advance. We had it with the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the IT sector in the late nineties. We had it with Japan um, in the late eighties. So you had that, and then I also had an indicator, which was best-selling investment books, and it's very rare to have a best-selling investment book. Mm-hmm. But in this case, in 79, everyone was doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. The coming bad years, had to prosper during the coming bad years, crisis investing. And then there would be ads in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, full-page ads with these bearded Jeremiah's predicting the end of the world. Yeah. And my friends are come to me and say, we're going to have a depression, we're going to have a depression. I said, are you kidding me? In the fall of 1929, there were full-page ads predicting the depression? Mm-hmm. No way. Everybody yeah. was bullish. Right. So I was just so confident that um, this inflation was coming. And Paul Volcker had raised uh, real rates to five, six, 7%, when in the whole post-war period it had been negative, negative two, negative three, negative four, negative five. So obviously that was happening and the, the U.S. economy was being deregulated. It was 100% re- regulated. And within a couple of years it was fifty percent deregulated. Mm-hmm. And out of files, files like this just stacked up with proof that disinflation was coming. But people were so ingrained and they'd been burned so badly in the bond market that they just cannot could not adopt us. It took I would say really took fifteen years longer until people thought it was possible. Yeah. It was just amazing. Yeah. Was amazing.
0: So so you know, in the early 80s, you had that uh, disinflationary bias. It seems like that the, these biases maybe come from a, a natural sense of contrarianism, as you kind of hinted at, you know, looking at the ads in the Wall Street Journal and just broad sentiment was so clearly bearish that uh, you had to be bullish on the economy and, and financial assets generally. Um, you know, it just makes me think about, you know, there's a passage on your website talks about you identifying the earlier period, the inflationary period that led up to that, you know, that break in the early eighties. Um, uh, I guess I'm really curious to find out, you said you kind of hinted earlier that you have now an inflation bias. Uh, how do you feel about the current environment, I guess, relative to, to those, those earlier periods?
1: Well, 79 was the end of something. And uh, 81 was the beginning of something. Now, without Reagan, disinflation might not have happened. Without Volcker, it never would have happened. So a lot of it has to do with with politics, if you will, and change of of regulation. If you look at the last 20, 30 years of, of disinflation, uh, you had a number of factors. You had the demographic time bomb. And we started studying Japan in 1998 because its population was peaking, its working population was peaking. And it was clear that demographics was, was going to be a big factor. And they, they entered this long period of, of, um, of disinflation. And it was interesting that there was a lot of, of growth in Japan pre the bursting of the bubble. And everybody got very negative and bearish. And, of course, when your real estate market, which was valued at 20000000000000 trillion, let's say on a $3 trillion GDP, uh, falls by 50 to 75%. Mm-hmm. That's a massive loss of wealth, yeah. which we've rarely seen. Uh, then you have Lacey Hunt's view, and he's been absolutely dead on, that the more debt you add, the less productive it becomes. Once you get to 75% debt to GDP, you're basically going to, going to slow down the economy the more debt you add. And then what also happens is that the velocity of money starts to decline so that the effectiveness of monetary policy de- declines. So he was, he's he been absolutely dead on. He still believes this, of course, debt is rising in a crazy fashion. So you ask, what is different? And, you know, I'm always very careful to use those words. (laughs) I'm not using this time. What is different? (laughs) And uh, what is different is a couple of things. The cycle of wealth creation to wealth distribution. And it's taking several... uh, It's going down several paths. The first one is that for 40 years... Capital was favored over labor. Mm -hmm. And this was a a good thing. But then 50% of the population was left behind. This was not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And it was not a level playing field. And there was a lot of social unrest and political instability. So now labor is number one. And people realize that. And there are also shortages of of labor in in various parts of the economy. People don't want to work. uh, People who are on the front line during the COVID, underpaid, risking their lives. I'm not going to do that again. So there's been a lot of of change. And I ask people from time to time, who are the most valued members of society? And as Will Durant says, morality is what society says it is. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you and I (laughs) could sit here today, 10 years, we could sit here and say something else. So for for 40 years or for 30 years, um, stock buybacks were great and return on capital was essential and squeezing and outsourcing and downsizing. This was all great. So those days are now over. Mm-hmm. Now we're we're in a period where it's it's focusing on those who are left behind and also investing in the underinvested areas, <clears throat> which are massive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if all if you do is think about... Uh, Getting your stock price up and profits, you're going to squeeze and not invest as much as you should. So America is underinvested hugely in so many areas, from public health to infrastructure, um, manufacturing. It's it's just it's a sad case. Mm-hmm. So all that is is happening, and you add to that the insecurity that has come from COVID and Trump. Trump having raised the specter of, you know, you, you don't play my game, I'm not going to sell you my my semiconductors. Mm-hmm. And that created a lot of insecurity. So countries like China are saying, no, no, we're not going to let ourselves be dependent on American technology. It may take years for countries to become independent, but Biden is saying the same thing, and Europe is saying the same thing. I mean, if we had sat here pre-COVID and I told you that America was dependent on 98% of its antibiotics from China and that we were in a trade war with China, you would say, well, who's, who launched that trade war? Shouldn't we be sure we have supplies <laughs> right. before we play around, right? Right. What's going on with these people? It's just incredible. So that's going to add costs because you're not searching for the low-cost supplier or the low-cost producer. So if you reshore, it's going to be expensive. Yeah. So those things are are happening. Then, of course, we have uh, this massive central bank, uh, Largesse, and taking a chapter out of Lacey Hunt, as long as the velocity of money keeps going down and the, the money that's being printed doesn't get into the real economy, we won't get the inflation. But the minute, for whatever reason, the velocity of money increases, you could have inflation just like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm watching this very carefully. Last September, we we became very bullish on inflationary uh, sectors, mm-hmm. All the areas that have been left behind, value, energy, materials, emerging markets, you know, just basically everything (laughs) that had not done well. And, uh, of course, it's now done incredibly well. Uh, And that's confirmation by the market. So one of the tools that we we have to use is we may have a theory uh, or we may have a hypothesis, but the market has to validate that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's... No, it's it's dead wrong. Right. So in this case, we had we had the hypothesis, we had the cycle right. We knew the election was going to be dramatic and a shift, and then the market confirmed it. Interesting. Yeah,
0: it, that's another theme that I hear. Um, you know, talking to a lot of you know, uh, um, terrific investors is that you, know, you might have a macro. Thesis, but until price confirms it, you know you can't really trade it. Um, let's talk about some of these uh, major, you know, themes that uh, that you're working on currently. Some of the ones you recently wrote about, um, where and you mentioned, you know, kind of rethinking supply chains, uh, potentially in terms of reshoring and deglobalization. Um, the green revolution seems to be another another one that you're focused on. And uh you had some interesting thoughts too on this trend towards remote work. Um starting with the first one, I think it kind of fits in what we've been talking about uh you know let's talk about uh supply chains and how how those have been um you know rethought. It seems like the pandemic and the lack of, you know, healthcare PPE and these types of things really kind of woke people up to the to the risks that we face in not having control of our supply chains.
1: Well, we have um uh... Semiconductors is probably the biggest. And China has uh, been spending a lot of money to develop its own semiconductor industry. They started this about four or five years ago. Obviously, it's in high speed. And, of course, the South Koreans are trying to maintain their lead, the Taiwanese, um, the Germans, the Americans, the Chinese. So... I think there's three trillion that's going to be spent on um, R and D and capex by the semiconductor industry, and see this is just this is just an investor's delight. Mm-hmm. I don't care who wins. You know, I'm not right. political. I'm totally apolitical. But so that the fact that there's a global competition means that the money is going to be spent no matter what happens. There could be you know another COVID. The money's still going to be spent, and that's that's just such a sweet spot to invest. And the, the flip side of that is the, the economic problem that's looking for a solution. So I've been talking about America's deteriorating infrastructure for you know as long as I've been in investing, mm-hmm. and it's been getting worse and worse and worse, and nothing's been done. It's going to get done. It mm-hmm. can't continue. Bridges are falling down. Water mains are leaking. It has to be addressed. And Why it hasn't been addressed up to this point, I I just can't possibly explain to you. But so the solution to an economic problem is a wonderful way to invest. Uh, the, the U.S. grid is very inefficient, extremely inefficient. It's three different grids, uh, and it needs to need to be a lot of money needs to be spent. Great. Well, how do I invest, you know, in that 5G? 5G is probably the most important uh, technological race, because whoever dominates 5G will really dominate uh, the world. Mm-hmm. And that's why America is so adamant against Huawei. And we used to be quite close to the uh, head of corporate planning, who was a uh, American-born Taiwanese uh, who just happened to have that job. So I got some insights into... Into their technology, and and I'm a little out of date, but I don't think it's changed. They they were offering to telcos to put in five G that would save their operating costs by twenty to twenty five percent, which none of the other competitors could do. That's that's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Now then, you have the politics. Now the Americans say to the Germans and the Brits, you can't do five G; it's not safe, and so on. So what we've done is we're investing in the Asian 5G suppliers because uh, we know that China's spending the money. And China, China and South Korea, I believe, have 80% of the 5G-based stations. So it's just, this, I've rarely seen a time where there's so many opportunities because there's so much money being spent yeah. by so many different parties. And the more competitive it is, as long as it's not ruinous, the better. And so, you know, I, I, it just makes me think of,
0: you know, uh, whenever I've found, you know, good oper- investment opportunities, it's things that didn't just hit me over the head once, they hit me over the head two, three, four times before I finally said, Okay, wow, I guess I better take a look at this. Um, it seems like kind of the same thing happens. It's so obvious. Uh, but in terms of expressing these ideas as, uh, you know, as a, an investment, um, in the markets, um, you also, you know, you were kind of humble about, you know, not, not taking advantage of a lot of opportunities over the years, but you seem to have a very, um, you know, I guess, uh, careful approach um, you know that that's that's very well thought out in terms of let's focus on semiconductor equipment companies because that's where the money's going to be be spent um, and then also in, in mining companies in, in healthy jurisdictions safe jurisdictions because we know this is going to take a lot of natural resources um, do you see these as kind of two of your your the most effective ways to take advantage of, of this larger trend of infrastructure and supply chains?
1: Well, I, I would answer it this way. Um, we have an energy transition that's taking place, and it may be the biggest thing we've, we've ever seen. It may be a hundred trillion opportunity if governments are able to persist in their efforts to, to curb emissions. And when they find out how much it's going to cost and how inflationary it is, they may back off. And if you're underinvesting in oil, oil goes up too much, and that's inflationary. But let's let's run through what we would want to do that just seems a no-brainer. Well, electric vehicles. That seems really easy to me, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at uh, what goes in an electric vehicle, you'll find that copper uh, is used five times more in an electrical vehicle than a traditional vehicle. So we're looking for um, safe jurisdiction uh, copper mines, and we found one up in Saskatchewan where it's the first carbon-neutral copper mine in the world, and it's probably in the top three best mining jurisdictions. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So that's the kind of way I'm, I'm executing on that.
0: Well, yeah, it's fascinating to me. I'm glad you brought up EVs because it seems like people see this trend towards creating a greener economy and they want to buy the EV stocks and you know as a student of market history myself you look back at when the automobile was invented and there were hundreds of car companies and the vast majority of it went out of business and so i think a lot of people who are buying ev stocks they don't necessarily appreciate that well a lot of them are going to end up creating a lot of terrific innovation that we'll all benefit from eventually but that doesn't mean they're all going to be great investments
1: yeah no that's right that's right. Um,
0: Okay, let's let's turn to uh, to a different um, trend. You know, we kind of mentioned this uh, uh, green revolution. Um, You know, obviously there's going to be a bunch of money spent. I'm interested. I was curious to hear you say that you think that the inflationary implications could force people to back off from a lot of these things, but. Uh, what I guess, you know, this is, this is a major trend, obviously, right? All, all the, all economies and investors in terms of ESG are making, uh, you know, uh, accommodations for trying to be, um, environmentally friendly or be more green in their investments and, and whatnot. H- how is, uh, you know, 13D approaching this major trend?
1: Well, we go back to 2002 where, you know, we had the 500 year flood that was, uh, due to an extreme weather event, which you could argue was due to climate change. And at that time, i became very bullish on oil. Oil was at 20, and I was studying peak oil, and it seemed to me like that was something that could, could happen. And so we were very bullish on oil in that decade. But at the same time, I said, let's study the other sources of, of energy, what we call them alternative in those days, which you would call clean energy renewables now. And we created a portfolio, and I just can't, I mean, how much it went up is just mind-boggling. This is even before we're entering the period where it's really going to happen. And the rollout of solar and wind and, and, uh, you know, other renewables like that has been just amazing. And solar is now the cheapest source of electric power in the world. They're installing it at... One and a half cents a kilowatt hour in Africa. And then you get the late mover advantage. You don't have the legacy utility that's going to fight you. And, uh, I, I have a solar field at my home in the Bahamas and I put it in maybe 2013. And I'm taking it out and replacing it with a double backed solar panel, which will increase its efficiency twofold. And I'm adding the top of the, of the lot I have. So, literally, I will have increased my capacity by um, three, threefold. And uh, I might actually get my money back on this one. <laughs> Not the first time around because the government there sued me to, uh, to turn it off, and I had to sue them as a long, long drawn-out <laughs> affair. But there is more awareness now. But solar is going to be solar, and you're going to plug in your electric vehicle, and we're going to all be saying, "Why didn't we do this before?" Mm-hmm. And it's going to become again, "What does society want?" It will be, you know, it'll be socially unacceptable, right? You, you mm-hmm. need to be driving an electric vehicle. Yeah, we're not there yet, but we will be. Right. And uh, I'm already starting to rotate out my, my uh, my old my old cars, even though I, I love them all, and buying electric vehicles. Yeah. It's interesting,
0: you know, you, you, you kind of hinted earlier, though, that um, the capital coming out of traditional energy potentially makes that space more attractive. I think you said last fall, September, you started becoming interested in energy, par- probably partly for that reason.
1: Is that, was that part of the thesis? Uh, no, it was just the way the market was acting. And um, uh, we started off with the market was was telling us. Mm-hmm. And it was very clear to me that it was responding to uh, a political change that was going to take place in November, and also the fact that the stocks that had done so well, which you know really dominated the indexes, were going to get into antitrust problems, mm-hmm. which is what's what's happening. Right. right? So, you know, it's, it's it's study of history. It's looking at uh, what... You know, in this case, Biden was saying what he wanted to do, looking at what the market was doing. But it all revolves around, you know, these these areas were starting to come alive and were starting to perform tremendously well on a relative strength basis against the prior winners. Yeah. And I think it was September,
0: October, too, you know, to come back to your, your biases that had seen, you know, the Dow kicked ExxonMobil out of the Dow 30, you know, the longest, you know, tenured component. And at the same time, you know, You know, when oil peaked a decade ago or whenever it was, you know, it was talk of peak oil that really, you know, was popular and kind of was a sentiment signal. Then I think last fall we were seeing so much talk about peak demand and people were so bearish on energy because they thought demand was going to peak and you know we weren't going to use use fossil fuels anymore but um i want to bring it back to we talked at the very opening about you know how you were an early adopter of this remote work and yeah 13g had a really interesting take on remote work obviously the pandemic uh, took this trend and really kicked it into high gear and people realized you know, that uh, working remotely is, is a possibility for so many different people and different occupations. But you look at this as uh, potentially a catalyst, um, a positive catalyst for the European Union. Can you explain that?
1: Well, you take a country like India, I mean like Italy, excuse me, which hasn't grown in 30 years, and there are two economies. There's a north and there's a south. And a tremendous brain drain. But you've got some beautiful places. Right. You've got 70% of the world's uh, historical monuments are located in Italy. You've got fantastic food. I mean, wow, well, what a what a place to live. And uh, there's an estimate that there are going to be a billion digital nomads by 2030. Right. So now you can go to the South, you can live in a beautiful place, and you can get the salary that you were going to get in Rome. Who yeah. <laughs> wouldn't want, to, want to, to to do this? So we're starting to see that. We're also starting to see that the brain drain out of Eastern Europe, which was massive, is now starting to reverse. Is it sustainable? Uh, you know, I don't know the answer. I, you know, having been a uh, teleworker or working remotely for most of my career, it's just, it's so obvious to me. What, why would you not want to do this? So right. the fact that everybody else is doing it now said, so yeah, well, it's about time. <laughs> right. uh, and it's a great way to, to raise kids. Um, you know, here you, your day is finished, and then you have a second day of, of recreation. Yeah, And you, you ski, you hike, you mountain bike, I mean you know, my daughter here is with me. She plays tennis for two hours in the morning. She goes mountain biking in the afternoon. She's swimming at the, the indoor pool, which is you know, a two-minute drive. Mm-hmm. In Switzerland, where, where we've been living because they've been in school, you know, it's 25, 30 minutes to drive to the tennis. It's uh, There is no indoor pool. Uh, it's just so easy. Yeah, and The simplicity of life is so appealing and so attractive. So I, I think this is what we're seeing is that that the the wealth of intellectual property is is moving mm-hmm. and it's not congregating in cities, so in those parts of Europe that have been moribund or have been struggling now now it's the people that make a country yeah so if you get you get the digital nomads, which is where the future is, to move back you're you're lighting a fire underneath the economy Interesting. so we're very bullish and draghi, of course. You know, you have to look at Draghi as, as a hero. I mean, what that man did in July two thousand twelve, we will do whatever it takes to save the euro. I mean, it was just, it was Churchillian. I mean, it was it was massive. And when he when he became involved in in Italy, I said, this is it. We got we got to be there. This is going to be big for Italy.
0: Yeah. Well, it was interesting to see, you know, some of those countries, Greece kept coming up on, you know, it's one of the cheapest stock markets in the world in, in recent years. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of times these things, you look at them and you go, well, why would anyone want to invest in Greece? And usually that reaction <laughs> means it's a good time to invest in Greece. So, I, and that's fascinating to me. I, I want to um, also bring it back to, you know, some of these quotes at the opening of your reports. There were a couple in a couple of your past reports that, that seemed like uh, they're more than coincidence. Um, there was a one quote in particular was why do we not hear the truth because we do not speak it uh, attributed to Pub, Publilius and then uh, Lenin Vladimir Lenin a lie told often enough becomes the truth Excuse me. Um, you know like I said I, I don't necessarily believe in coincidences what what is kind of yeah, you know, obviously I have my own interpretation, but I'd, I'd really like to hear from you. Why do you think these quotes are important for for people uh, to to know and, and understand today?
1: Well, and I would add a, a, a Gribble's quote, which is "The bigger the lie, the more apt it is to be believed." And when social media began, this is another thing that I I missed. Uh, not that I didn't know it would be big, but I th- I saw the potential damage of social media to democracy and, and exactly what has happened was exactly what I thought would happen and so that is that has made this more uh, timely and people will, will hide in their groups where their biases uh, are reinforced and they're not so much interested in the truth as they are in confirmation bias, mm-hmm. and that's extremely dangerous. It's dangerous for democracy, it's dangerous for, for um, society. It's, it, it's, you have to have a society that is searching for the truth and respect science. How do we dig ourselves out of this? Uh, I don't know. I think there has to be a great respect for the truth And I'm hoping that the experience with COVID in America, where there was such a disregard for the science at the beginning, and what is 600,000 deaths, there could have been a fraction had there been more respect for the science, that when all is said and done, there would be a greater respect for the the truth. And we will look to people who speak the truth, and there will be a great searching for the truth. That's what I'm interested I just want the truth. I don't care. I don't need to be pat on the back. Uh, I don't want to be right. I just want to know what the truth is. Yeah. And there's some of us who search desperately for the truth, and it, we never stop searching ever, because we can never find the, the perfect truth. And we have to get back to a time when, when the truth becomes something that's critical for society. Yeah. Well, I, for one, want to thank you for being a beacon of truth,
0: uh, over the years and, and at least trying to call attention to shine a light on, on what you believe to be, um, you know, the true nature of things and, and developments in, in, in the world. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, at the very beginning, um, of, of our conversation that meditation, um, is, plays a big role. And, and when I was, um, uh, you know, walking through your house before we started recording, I saw you know there are pictures of you with the Dalai Lama who you've hosted here. Can you just? I think it would be just a wonderful um, you know boon to to my listeners to just understand if you could talk a little bit about your meditative practice and how that provides value to to what you do.
1: Well, when I first met the Dalai Lama, I asked him what is mankind most desperately in need of, and. He's very eloquent. He speaks eight languages. You know, he gets up at 3 in the morning and meditates for five hours. But, so if you, you know, by the time 6, 7 o'clock p.m. runs around, he's a little, little tired sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but, so I said, what is mankind most desperately in need of? And he said, they, they rush after this, they rush after this, they want this, they want this, they want this, they want this. What everybody wants is peace of mind. Peace of mind. I can heal, still hear his words. Now, with information overload and multitasking, how can we conceivably have peace of mind? Right. How can we conceivably analyze correctly when all we're doing is reacting impulsively instead of quieting the mind? All the information, the universe, everything is there. It's not like we have to dig for it. We just have to quiet the mind and, and the insights will come to us. So, my meditation practice uh, is really, it's really amazing what I've been able to accomplish, and people tell me that it's extraordinary. So, when I'm really into my practice, and there might be some times when I'm, I'm too busy to, to do it the way that I need to do it, but I will meditate and I will, will see a light, I will see a bright light. And then I'll start seeing faces. They'll be like literally 3D. So your Mm -hmm. face would be like as clear as it is now for a nanosecond. And then somebody else's face and somebody else's face. It's incredibly clear. It's Mm. in 3D color. And this is extraordinarily unusual in a meditation practice. And I ask people what it means. Everybody has a different opinion, those who know, but these are my guardians. Uh, I'm I'm directly in touch with the with the universe, and I'm receiving information. And when you when you start to see that, it's just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. You, you ask yourself, well, why am I doing anything else?
0: Right, <laughs> right. But it seems to have you know have benefits beyond you know your your own peace of mind in terms of helping you be, you know, better at what you do and, and looking for things and, and quieting your mind.
1: And I, I'm, I've been told that um, intuition and action are now one and the same. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, I struggled for easily 10 years trying to separate impulse from desire and intuition. They all, you know, motivated by the same thing. You know, I, you know, I want... Oil to go to 100 because <laughs> I have $90 oil calls, right? <laughs> right. And, uh, uh, or uh, you'd just be impulsive. The market would be taking off and say, yeah, 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 I got to be on this. Yeah. I, I'm not, I think I've worked my way through that. I've separated out those other two. So it's just, it's pure intuition. Mm-hmm. And the action is simultaneous with the intuition. So I just, I just know I have to do it. I just do it right away. I don't, I don't agonize over it. I've come to respect, um, Masa San. Initially, I thought, you know, you look at something after 20 minutes, you're going to invest 5 billion. I said, this seems a little impulsive, but I think I understand more about what he was doing. And, uh, you just sometimes you look at something and you, just, you know in twenty minutes right. that this is it. Yeah. And the great investments always: the the more you dig down, the better it is. Yeah. I mean, I was in the Hong Kong stock market in nineteen ninety two, was selling it six times earnings, five percent yield, best thirty year earnings record in the world. And then Dan goes to Shenzhen and says to be richest, glorious. I mean, there it is, right there. That's all you needed to know. Yeah. And you could have gotten bogged down with, oh, this the stock's there or into property, and the property's overvalued. Yeah, sure, right. It went up a hundred times in value. Uh, So the simplicity—it just jumps off the 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 table at you to see this is this is really big. Yeah, I got to be here. I got to do this. Right. Well, And and then you just. You just dive in, yeah. dive in full. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Carol, this has been fantastic. I, I've, uh, I could spend hours asking you about everything under the sun, and I know I would get a ton out of it, but you've already spent uh, you know, a ton of time with me. You've been very generous with sharing your, your insights, and uh, I want to just thank you. Where, where can um, people, uh, I guess, keep up with you, your ideas, and, and learn more about you in 13D?
1: Well, we have a website, and I would suggest that they they visit the website thirteen mm-hmm. uh, dcom
0: absolutely and it 's been something that 's been one of the most um, uh, original and, and you know, uh, surprising reads <laughs> when I read it you know and uh, like you said the, the tr- a lot of these trends are obvious but but a lot of the conclusions that you come to are not so obvious so it 's it's, it's a wonderful Um, resource I recommend everybody check out. Carol, thank you so much for taking the time. I've really enjoyed this, and I'm grateful to you.
1: Jesse, it's always good to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high.
1: Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.